See, we've just finished our series in the book of Colossians, and one of the things I loved about the book of Colossians is that we got a clear picture of who the person of Jesus is. So we know how to recognize Christ now. And because we have such a clear view of who Christ is from the New Testament, well then, we can make our way back to the Old Testament and see him in it. So that is why I thought that it would be appropriate to anticipate Christ this year through the lens of Old Testament expectation. Come, thou long-expected Jesus. And so in order to do this, we're going to be looking at this series in Old Testament Christmas. And we're going to see four different themes in the Old Testament that help us to anticipate the coming of Christ. The first will be this morning we're looking at the promise of his coming. The second will be the prophecies of his coming. Prophet, priest, and king will be the third, which is those Old Testament offices that Christ fulfills. And then finally, the purpose of his coming, where we'll explore on Christmas Eve the new covenant. So if I can accomplish one goal and one goal alone, it would be that we, as we look through these Old Testament passages, would catch a glimpse of the incomparable Jesus Christ. Now listen, uh, I understand that the holidays are upon us. It's December 1st, or where are we at now? See, they're already passing by. I mean, some of you have just, you, you dove in headlong, right? Black Friday came, you're out there running people over at Walmart. <laughs> you're off to the races, there's no looking back, and I get it. But I thought it would be nice if we could just look at some ancient scriptures. Some of these go back 3,500 years and uh, as we take a look at them, maybe they'll help us to slow down and to see Jesus in the text. So if you would, open your Bibles with me. We're going to look at Genesis chapter 3. Genesis 3. If you don't have a copy of the scriptures, there should be a blue Bible in the chair in front of you. You can turn it to page 3. But just so you know how to navigate the Bible a little bit, there's 66 books of the Bible. Genesis is the first book of the Bible. So you should always be able to find Genesis when I say turn there. So Genesis chapter 3. Genesis 3. Now I want to begin by talking about the promise of his coming. What does a promise mean to you? Is there a certain expectation you have when someone makes a promise to you? Say I was to come to you and say I promise that I'll be somewhere. And then 10 minutes before I'm supposed to arrive, I text you and say, sorry, not going to be there. Have I fulfilled a promise? As a dad, I've learned the importance and the power of a promise in a child's life. I keep finding more and more that when I make a promise to one of my kids that I better do what I say that I'm going to do because a promise has some sort of meaning. I learned to greatly appreciate how my father operated when I was a boy. Uh, I would go up to him sometimes and be like, Dad, promise me that you'll take me fishing this weekend. I just want to go out and go fishing. Let's go, Dad. Let's go. And he'd be so careful with his words. He would say, Son, now I, I can't promise that. You know the nature of my job. You know that certain things can come up from time to time. But I really want to take you fishing this weekend but I'm never going to make a promise to you when I can't fulfill it. 
I know of another dad who loves to joke with his children. They have this kind of playful, sarcastic, fun-loving atmosphere in their home. And he can be kind of a trickster to them. He likes to kind of turn things upside down and trick them in the home. But one thing that he said to his kids, he said, when daddy makes a promise, he's not kidding. Because a promise has meaning. And we know that the meaning of the word promise is that an assurance that someone will do something that they said that they would do for you. It goes deeper than a simple commitment. It's a pledge or a vow or a guarantee. And it's deeply relational. When you make a promise to someone, you're putting your name on the line. Your reputation. That's why when someone breaks a promise to you, there's actually that deep feeling of rejection that comes along with it because it was a commitment, a relational commitment. And we all live with the consequences in life of a string of broken promises that people, whether close to us or not so close, have made. Or maybe you agree with Jonathan Swift. Promises and pie crusts are made to be broken. However the world treats promises, it would be false to say when it comes to God that God would ever break a promise. God always keeps his promises. That's what the Bible tells us. Charles Spurgeon once said, in the same way that the sun never grows weary of shining nor a stream flowing, it is God's nature to keep his promises. He is a God who writes checks and he likes to cash them for us. So I know that when you look at the Bible, there's all kinds of promises, but I thought it would be very important this morning for us to go and take a look at God's first promise and his most important promise to people. When did God make this promise and what's it all about? Well, we're gonna find out that it's right here in the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter three, Verse 15. So let's read that together and then we'll talk about the context of it. In Genesis 3.15, the Lord is cursing the serpent. And he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now on January 14th, so when we get into the new year, Lord willing, Um, we will be making our way through the book of Genesis. I know what you're thinking. You're like, whoa, that's going to take forever, and you're right, but don't freak out, okay? I'm going to break it up a little bit. We're going to take some stops along the way. It's still going to take a super long time, but Genesis is a great book of the Bible. Genesis is one of my favorite books. It's called The Book of Beginnings, And it's that book of the Bible that develops a lot of the core theology that we take through the rest of the Bible. In fact, Genesis is the first book to tell us about Jesus. It gives us this idea that a Messiah is coming. So I want to take a look at the context of this particular verse. Now you know if you've read the story that God had placed Adam and Eve into the garden and that it was perfect in every way. I mean, I want you to think like this. Envision the most beautiful place that you've ever been before. I mean, whatever you find gorgeous, fulfilling, beautiful. And then think of that as like a dump by way of comparison. 
I mean, that's what the garden was. It was paradise in every way. Everything is good. It's stunning. The food's out of this world. It's a place where there's laughs and funs, uh, fun, and there is this healthy responsibility where God has given uh, man and woman a purpose in life. And I want you to think of this because it has to be paradise because Adam and Eve never argue at all. But God made one request of them, right? He says in Genesis 2, 15 and 7, 16 and 17, of the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. So we find then in Genesis 3 that Adam and Eve are tempted by the serpent, and let's just be clear, the serpent is Satan. Uh, we come later into the Bible, in the book of Revelation 12, 9, where we see these references of Satan, and it calls him the dragon, the ancient serpent, the devil. Some have liked to say that this serpent is the personification of evil or that it has something to do with mankind's uh, uh, hatred towards snakes, but that's not what it, we're talking about here. We're talking about the devil, Satan. In John 8, 44, Jesus tells us that Satan was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Elsewhere in the Bible, we see that Satan is the one who brought death into the world. Now, Adam and Eve believed his lies. They ate the fruit, and as a result, sin comes crashing into this paradise. So at this point, Everything has gone bad, fatally bad, terminally bad, historically bad, inescapably bad. And Adam and Eve, by their sin, set in motion a spiritual avalanche that is going to carry with it all of humanity, and it buries humanity in sin. This is the Bible's explanation for why the world is the way it is. Now, I know in good conversation today, we don't throw out the word sin very much. I mean, if you ever want to leave a Christmas party early, just try this as a conversation starter. How have you sinned lately? They're going to avoid you like the plague. But it's surprising that sin is actually finding its way back into our public conversation as we are witnessing what has been called the Weinstein effect. Powerful men across American culture are finally being exposed for using and abusing their power to sexually exploit women. And such uh, news outlets as USA Today and the New York Times have actually used sin, the word, in their headlines to talk about it. Now, interestingly enough, the New York Times saw the error of their ways and changed the word from sin to problem in their article. Uh, CNN, I just recently saw an interview with Tom Hanks where he attributed the Weinstein effect to what? Human nature. As USA Today and others note, Harvey Weinstein can't wash away Hollywood sin. The USA Today article that was titled that by Glenn Reynolds notes that Weinstein's actions were facilitated by scores of hundreds of accomplices, assistants, producers, actors, actresses, talent agents, 
kept under his influence with development uh, deals and options and the like. And they did this because while Weinstein might have been an exceptional jerk, and my little side note here, he is, his behavior wasn't so unusual for the industry. Now, I got to tell you, I could go on and on about this particular issue, but we're here to talk about Genesis and God's word. Now, many people are asking the question, how could this happen? I mean, how in the world could, for crying out loud, Charlie Rose, everyone, or a Matt Lauer, or a Bill O'Reilly, and many others, how could they do such a thing, and, and how could they find themselves within institutions that turn a blind eye? Genesis 3. Why is human life the way it is? Why is the planet so deadly and dangerous? Why are deadly microorganisms out there? Why are there hurricanes? Genesis 3. Why is it that I can't be the dad that I want to be and the husband that I want to be? Why is it that I think the thoughts that I think? Why is it that I outburst in anger the way I do? Genesis 3. We've all been plunged into physical and spiritual death from the moment that you and I were born. We were born to die. But God doesn't leave humanity in the dark. Here in this chapter, we have God's first promise embedded in his curse to Satan. It is also the first time that the gospel is preached, and it's encouraging me to, to me to think about the fact that the first time that God issues the good news is in the middle of a curse. He doesn't wait. He doesn't wait for hours. He doesn't wait for weeks. He doesn't wait for years. The first time that God preaches the gospel to humanity is in the fall. And as he issues these words, he has Christmas on his mind. And the rest of the story is about the grace, forgiveness, and loving kindness of God. Redeeming lost humanity back to himself. Now what does this passage mean, Genesis 3.15? If I were to hand to all of us in the room a 3 by 5 card and ask you to answer the question, why did Jesus come as a baby? Why did he appear? What would your answer be? Why did Jesus come as a baby? Why did he appear? I find John, the apostle's answer, to be very helpful. In 1 John 3, 8, he says, Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. You see, Genesis 3.15 is good news for humankind, but is very, very bad news for Satan. You notice that God doesn't give any back and forth to Satan in this judgment. He doesn't say that there was extenuating circumstances to consider, no motions for appeal, no high-priced lawyers to argue Satan's case, no loopholes. God says that he is going to judge Satan. Now, Ray Pritchard rightly notes that the fall marks Satan's finest moment. It seemed that he had scored a victory. He had wrecked God's plans and gained the world for himself, but here's the beautiful thing. 
the victory is short-lived. Because here in Genesis 3.15, God declares war on Satan. And we gain a sense of this conflict when we look at that verse. Let's look at it one more time. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. The key word is that word enmity. Enmity meaning to be hostile. That there's this animosity. One translation says that I will set a feud. Another says there will be war. God declares war on Satan. Now how will this war play out? Well, on one level, God declares that it will happen between the offspring of the woman and the offspring of Satan so that that Hebrew word offspring is the singular word for seed, which means one of the lineage of Eve or of the lineage of Eve. So on one level, that offspring could mean then men and women who have come from Eve in every generation and would reject the plans of Satan and would love God from the heart. And as you're tracing your way through the Bible, there's this godly line of Abel's and Seth's and Enoch and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and Moses and Joshua, Ruth, David, Daniel, Esther. And it eventually culminates into the person of Jesus Christ. But remember, it's a war. Satan has his offspring too. So that in every time of history, in every generation, in every country, every city, every village, and every tribe and clan and family, there are people who are a part of Satan's camp. This is a, a plot line that runs the course of the Bible. Cain kills Abel. Egypt enslaves Israel. Pharaoh threatens to kill Moses. It's the story of Goliath against David. It's the story of Babylon against Jerusalem. The story of Herod the Great slaughtering babies. The story of Judas kissing Jesus on the cheek and, and Pilate saying that I wash my hands clean of this man's blood. And it's the story that continues today as the church faces opposition and persecution in the name of Jesus. Francis Schaeffer notes that two humanities arise from this point. From this time on in the flow of history, there are two humanities. The one humanity says there is no God, or it makes God in its own imagination, or it tries to come to God in its own way. The other humanity comes to the true God in God's way, and there is no neutral ground. So if you're ever wondering to yourself, well, why is it that I experience this social tension, ostracism, whatever it is, for holding to a Christian Orthodox worldview, it's right here in the book of Genesis. Jesus later explained to his disciples in John 15, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as it own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Now I want to take this passage that's at this level and it's talking about these two humanities and let's, let's go a little bit deeper now. 
You see, at this last part of the verse, God says something very specific to uh, Eve and of her seed. He says, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. I actually prefer the NIV translation, which reads, he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Now in church history, uh, church fathers such as Justin Martyr and Irenaeus understood that this term seed in this passage was a reference to Christ who would ultimately come and crush the head of Satan. Uh, there have been scholars today uh, on modern biblical criticism who said, oh, no, no, that doesn't mean anything more than the personification of evil or this is why humans and snakes don't seem to like one another. But there are many reasons to reject that interpretation. One of the big ones has to do with the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament Hebrew scriptures that was formed in 250 BC. So we have no Christian pre-understanding or presupposition here. The Septuagint translates the word seed as a single individual. He will crush your head, meaning the Jewish people were anticipating a he, a one to come, a Messiah. This view is also strengthened by the internal witness of the New Testament scriptures. Remember, if you're a good Bible student, you know that scripture interprets scripture. So Paul in Galatians argues on the basis of the use of the singular word seed in God's promise to Abraham that the word seed refers to Christ. He says, now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and the offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. So here in Genesis 3.15, we have a prophecy of the cross of Jesus Christ when Satan would strike his heel talking about Jesus' sufferings on the cross. But Christ would deliver the crushing blow to Satan's head, which refers to his substitutionary death and his victorious resurrection. Now, who wins the battle? I don't know about you. I've bruised my heel before. It hurts. But I'm not calling up the lawyer to write my last will and testament. But a crushing blow to the head? No one lives after that. Just as he did at the fall, Satan believed he had defeated God's plan at the cross. But God is the God who turns things upside down. So when the ancient serpent sought to bite the heel of our Lord, that was the crushing blow that would ultimately end his reign. Hebrews 2.14 Because God's children are human beings made of flesh and blood, the Son also became flesh and blood. For only as a human being could he die, and only by dying could he break the power of the devil who had the power of death. And Paul tells the church, you get to participate in this victory. In Romans 16.20, He says, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. 
so that each moment that you live a faithful Christian life, you are compounding that death blow upon Satan. Every time that you share the gospel of grace and you plant a seed into the human heart, you are sowing into the destruction of the enemy of the human soul and of God. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So we've looked at the timing of God's promises. We looked at the the meaning of it. But now let's apply it. What do God's promises mean for you? What does this Christmas story mean about God and about his relationship with us? So let's look at a couple of implications. The first implication is this, that God never breaks a promise. We talked about that that dynamic where it seems like we're living with a series of broken promises in our life from people that we've trusted, people that we've known. And some of them have hurt us deeply. And if we're going to be honest with ourselves, we've also contributed to the problem because we have in turn broken promises. But God never breaks a promise. Hebrews 6.18 says, God has given both his promise and his oath. These two things are unchangeable because it is impossible for God to lie. Now, I got to tell you, as a human being, any time that we make a promise, there is some kind of contingency attached to it. I mean, I could promise my kids, kids, this uh, summer we're going to go to Florida and we're going to have a great time and we're going to have a vacation. But I can't ultimately promise that to them. I mean, the car could break down. We could get into some kind of financial strain that we shouldn't go down to Florida and spend that kind of money. Uh, They could drive me nuts and I could say, you know what? No, I'm not taking you for a 20-hour car ride. But God, when he says that he will do something, it's 100% certain. It's a guarantee because God is sovereign. In Isaiah 14, 27, the text says that the Lord of hosts has purposed and who will annul it? His hand is stretched out and who will turn it back? The people of Israel saw in Joshua 23, 14, you know in your heart and your soul, all of you, that not one word has failed of all the good things that the Lord your God promised concerning you. All have come to pass for you. Not one of them have failed you ever want to do a very good and interesting study in the Bible, I would encourage you to trace the lineage of Jesus from Adam to the person of Jesus. And as you trace that, I want you to see all the times that the line of Christ, that there was an attempt made on the line of Christ. Cain kills Abel, but God gives Adam and Eve Seth, Abraham and Sarah barren, Isaac and Rebekah, barren. Esau threatens to kill Jacob. Ruth is rejected as a foreigner, but Boaz marries her and they have Obed. David is pursued by Saul. David is pursued by Absalom. At one point in David's line, the line goes down all the way to one last error. The mother of all the children of David, Athaliah, wipes out all of the male lineage and only one child One years old at the time, Joash escapes. The line makes it through the Babylonian captivity. 
Even at the birth of Jesus Christ, Herod the Great used all of his power and pull to try to end the young child's life. You see, I believe that Satan is a great interpreter of prophecy. I think he understood that God intended to send his son Jesus. I believe that he was fully engaged throughout Old Testament history to try to wipe out that line. Again and again and again, he makes attempts. He even goes after the nation of Israel by way of genocide in order to wipe this line out. But God's purposes will not be thwarted. Though Satan tried repeatedly to put a stop to God's promised plan, God overrules because God will never break a promise. Another implication that we see, and this is something that is so helpful to all of us, is to know that God loves to keep his promises. Charles Spurgeon, the Prince of Preachers, said over a century ago, God's promises were never meant to be cast aside like waste paper. He intends for us to use them. His gold is not the currency of a miser. He means for us to use it for trading. Nothing pleases our Lord more than to see us put his promises into circulation. We glorify God when we earnestly plead his promises. Do you honestly believe God will be any poorer for giving you the riches that he has promised? Do you actually suppose he will be any less holy for granting us holiness? Do you somehow imagine he will be any less pure after cleansing you for your sins? So never let one of the promises of God rust. And what are some of these promises that we see throughout the Bible? There's many of them. Many promises that God wants his church and his people to lay claim of. One that I see is that he has promised to supply our needs. Philippians 4.19, and my God will supply every need of yours according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. And I see this as physical needs. I see it as God caring for our food and our daily intake. Uh, I see it as God fulfilling us and bringing completion into our life. I don't see it as I get that jet plane that I've always wanted. But God will meet your needs. You don't have to fear. He has promised also that his grace is sufficient. Paul said that he was living with a thorn in the flesh. But as he took the, 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 the big picture view of life and circumstances and he saw all the things that he was facing, he said, look, I've got it made because I have the grace of God. I don't need anything else. He supplied me richly. He has promised that he will not let us be tempted beyond our ability, 1 Corinthians 10.13, which means that any struggle that you are currently facing in this life, any struggle, by the power of God, by the help of God, by the grace of God, you can overcome it. In Jude 24, the Bible says that God is able to keep you from stumbling. He has promised that all things will work together for the good of those who love him. Romans 8, 28. Now at times, this is one of those promises that you have to claim by faith because as we look at life and events and circumstances, sometimes we look at the big picture and we say, I can't fit the pieces of the puzzle together. It just doesn't seem like God is going to make good on that promise. By faith, we can say, God, I trust that you always keep your promises and you will. And often as we look back over the course of time, we see 
Romans 8.28 moments all along the way. God has also promised victory over death, which is, in my mind, the greatest promise of all. Because of the power of the resurrection, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? So some of these promises have this future payday, but they're meant to be claimed today to put hope into the heart of the Christian. Are you going to the Heavenly Father by faith? Are you laying claim to these promises? Are you seeking while the getting's good? Are you asking him to cash the checks? Another implication, God keeps his promises at just the right time. Now think with me of the Christmas story. You know, it's one thing to say that God always keeps his promises. It's another thing in the human heart to believe it, right? Because when the circumstances of life are mounting up and it seems like time just keeps going on and on and on, it's easy to fall into doubt and say, is God going to answer this particular promise? But again, think about Christmas. God didn't promise the coming of Jesus to Isaiah. He wasn't the first one to hear it. He didn't first promise it to David. He didn't first promise it to Moses. He first promised it to Eve. I mean, think about the duration, the passage of time. It must have seemed like it took forever. But as Galatians 4.4 tells us, but when the appropriate time had come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that they may be adopted as sons. I like to think of that expression, that phrase, the appropriate time, as just the right time. Because God's timing is perfect. If he would have sent the Savior, the Son of God, into the world any sooner than he did, the gospel wouldn't have gone out like wildfire like it did. But he did it at just the right time, and his plan went forward in an incredible way. Another thing we see is that all God's promises find their yes in Jesus. So through the Old Testament, God takes the first promise that he gave to Adam and Eve, and he amplifies it. That first promise is rather general. Eve's seed will crush Satan's head, but along the way, it intensifies. There's this growing expectation of what this will be like, and he does this through his covenants. You can think of a covenant as a, a promise from God to us that he will be faithful to the relationship that he has chosen to have with us. And we see all these different covenants made and, and God's promises along the way. The Adamic covenant, which was God's promise to Eve of victory over Satan. The Noahic covenant, when God had wiped out the world with a cosmic worldwide flood, there was this promise of the covenant sign of a rainbow, that there would be peace. The Abrahamic covenant, where he promised Abraham a blessing to the nations. The Mosaic covenant, he promised through Moses a perfect obedience that could be had by the law of God. The Davidic covenant, he promised through David an everlasting king. The new covenant, he promised through the prophets forgiveness and heart transformation. And Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 1.20, all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. 
Jesus is the one who defeated Satan. He's the one that secured for us peace with God. Jesus is the blessing to the nations. Jesus is the one who perfectly obeys the law of God. Jesus is the one who will reign forever. Jesus is our means to forgiveness and to transformation. All of the promises of God find their yes in him. Which begs the question, if all of the promises of God find their yes in Jesus, are you looking elsewhere for promises? What other promises are there? They're all found right here. I'd like to close our time by sharing three questions that an evangelist Paul Little would ask when he would tell someone of the gospel of grace. The gospel of grace is that God sent his son and his son died on the cross for our sins. And he rose again from the dead and anyone who believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. He would first ask, have you accepted Christ as your Savior or are you still on the way? Some of you are still on the way toward Christ. You hear this and you realize that step by step you're coming closer and closer to a moment of decision, but you're not quite there yet. The second question is, if you're still on the way, where are you in your spiritual journey in this moment? Are you moving more away from Christ? Are you rejecting what I'm saying? Or are you starting to say to yourself, you know what, this is making a lot of sense. The third question is this, if it is making a lot of sense, are you ready to receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior? The Bible tells us that all who believe in him and accept him, he gives the right to become children of God. Have you ever trusted Christ as your Lord and Savior? Would you like to do so right now? So I want to ask everyone to bow their heads with me. And you can make that a commitment right now where you're sitting. I'm going to lead you in a prayer. Now I just want you to recognize that it's not prayer that saves us. It's faith in the Son of God. But this is just a means of saying to him in your heart, Jesus, I give my life to you. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, in the best way I know how I receive you as Lord and Savior, I confess that I am a sinner. I've sinned against both God and others. I trust that your death on the cross fully paid for all of my sins. I believe that you rose from the dead and have ensured eternal life for me. Please send now your Holy Spirit into my heart so that I can follow you for the rest of my life. In your name we pray. Amen.